Our God is so good. I love the Lord today, church. I truly love the Lord. And um, I want to encourage you to be here for tonight's annual business meeting. Um, we do have some important business to transact. And, uh, of course, how of you know kingdom business is important business? Amen. And we want you to just be here and be a part of that. Uh, we won't keep you very long, if half hour, 45 minutes. Um, you may want to mute about everybody but me, brother. <clears throat> James chapter 1. Will you turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1? Set that time aside for... Uh, Set that time aside for the 30th on Memorial Day. We want you to spend that day with us. And it's going to be a very important, very precious day. So don't, don't miss that. And um, I don't mind saying a little bit of something right here about the fact that we are heading into Pentecost Sunday. And so I have you know Pentecost... The, the word Pentecost literally means 50. It's 50 days from the Passover. So we've got a few weeks before we come to Pentecost Sunday. But it's so important that um, we begin to look ahead towards that day. Not just because we're Pentecostal and because we get our name from that, but because Pentecost was a very important feast. It was the Feast of the Harvest. And having you know if there's something we should be doing today, it is the harvest. We should be preparing for the harvest. Jesus is coming. And we are so excited today that this month we've had about 12 people accept the Lord. Praise the Lord. How do you think that's incredible? Or actually this past month. Today's the first. Can we give God a praise for that? But I am believing God that this summer is going to be the greatest summer that we've ever had. We're going to kick that off Pentecost Sunday. We're going to be having a very special Sunday night service on Pentecost Sunday. Everyone say Sunday night. So as we approach, we'll be announcing it. Amen. We're waiting to hear back. We've made some invitations to some, to some uh, pretty wonderful people, but I want to say who they are. And then they tell us they can't make it that night. But, the, you know, we've already put the word out. We've set that date. Uh, to some folks that we felt led of the Lord. I think it's going to work out for them to be here with us, but we're going to have a very special Sunday night service. I want you to get ready for that and be prepared for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I, I just I love coming together on Sunday nights because the time doesn't matter as much. You know, now this morning it's already 1130 and you're getting the grum bellies and having Big Mac attacks and you know what I'm saying? And some of you are thinking right now, You'd even settle for a hay Kool-Aid busting through the wall right now. Just a quick beverage fix. But anyway, uh, you know, and I understand it. But on Sunday nights, we can come together and we just let God have his way. And we start at 6 o'clock. And if church goes on, that's all right. We're just going to go on see what the Lord's going to do. That's all right, isn't it? All right. We've got a couple people that enjoy that. But in James chapter 1 and verse 1, I want to begin to read to you from what is called one of the uh, Jewish epistles. There's a reason it's called a Jewish epistle. And that is because that it is one of five 
of the epistles that were written to the church, not only specifically to the early New Testament Jews, but largely because when the, the time to which they were written and the groups to which they were written, uh, the church had not yet really reached out effectively to the Gentiles. And so we know that in those very early days, before there was a vision, and James is the oldest of our epistles. Have you knew that? Written about 45 A.D., before the destruction of the temple, before the destruction of Jerusalem. James writes his letter, and so it's not strange that he addresses it in the way that he does because it was still in those early days when the Gentiles had not yet really received the gospel. The Apostle Paul had not even yet been anointed and sent out to begin his incredible journeys when James penned this letter to the church. And knowing that helps us to better understand this book. How many of you could see that? And to know that it was written to those who uh, were raised Hebrews, devout Hebrews, but they have accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And in accepting Christ as the Messiah, they're accepting a completely new way of life, one that will lead them to completely being ostracized by their church and their very families. Think about that. Coming to the Lord in those early days meant that you gave up family. Wow. Wow. I'll even say it backwards. Wow. That is a really big deal. How many you know there's nothing more important than family? You know, I was thinking about I was thinking about when my baby sister Becky was born. I don't remember much about when Tammy was born, but when the baby Becky that's, that's my baby sister, the youngest of three sisters who tortured me the first 16, 17 years of my life with the help of an older brother. But I remember when, I remember when Becky was born, and I remember they brought her home, and I remember looking over the bassinet and peeking in and seeing her for the very first time and thinking, oh, dear God, we have another sister. And being young like I was, I, and here she was crying, crying, crying. Why, I don't know why she was so fussy, but on this particular time, she was fussy. And just, you know, for the first time in my life, I began to wonder, where did she come from? And so being the young intellectual that I was and thirsting for knowledge, I turned to my parents and my parents, and I said, uh, where did she come from? And of course, my mom, not wanting to begin my education too quickly, thought about it a second and looked at me and said, she came from heaven. And I said, well, I can see why they threw her out. She cries a lot. <laughs> you know, there's nothing like family. Have you realized that? But we're going to talk today about a group of people that when they came to the Lord, they had to give up family. I want you to get this today. I want you to get this in your spirit because church has become all about relationships and nothing about doctrine. 
nothing about spiritual leadership, nothing about spiritual mentoring, but it's about relationship. And I want you to see, just as we look into this a little bit today, how much the body of Christ has shifted away from the biblical model. We have moved away from the biblical model. Everything you read about church and church growth and what's happening in the Western culture of church today, everything is about who is going to sit on the pew next to me when I go to church this Sunday. Who's going to be my buddy? Who's going to be my friend? One church growth expert stated in his book that if someone does not meet someone then within the first three times that they visit a church that they believe could be a lifetime personal friend, they will not come back to that church. Now that says to us as a church that we need to be loving. We need to be open. Have you believed that? But that's really an indictment because then what happens if we fall out of relationship with somebody, then we have to uproot and change churches. What's quiet in here. And we see it happen over and over and over again. I mean, you know, I've been pastoring 20 years. So I've been pastoring long enough to have known church before this is the way it was and to know church now as this is the way that it is. And it's frustrating as a pastor, you know, because it used to be when people left the church, it was over something that had to do with the church. Well, you know, I don't appreciate what you said. I don't agree with what you teach. I, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I, I have a problem with that. I got a problem with how you spend the money at the church. Or, you know, I got a problem with, uh, you know, we don't do enough this in the church or that in the church. But, but. You know, for the last several years, people leave the church. The first thing they want to tell you is, well, it has nothing to do with you. Well, how can it have nothing to do with me? I'm the bishop of your soul. I'm supposed to be your spiritual father. I'm supposed to stand for God one day and give an account for your soul and tell God, this is somebody right here that was faithful and trustworthy. How can it have nothing to do with me? Well, it has to do with so-and-so over there. We don't, we just, I just can't go to church with them anymore. I can't be around them anymore. What? How do we compare that kind of faith and dedication to this group of people right here that we're going to read about that when they came to Jesus, they gave up their family. Someone say family. Not just their buddies. Not just some friend. Not just a golf partner. Not just somebody they hang with. But in order to follow Jesus... They knew that it meant that mom and dad were going to disown them. And as far as mom and dad were concerned, you are dead to me. No more Christmases. No more Thanksgiving. Of course, for them, it would have been no more Pentecost. No more Feast of Weeks. No more Passover. You can't share any of these events and feasts with us any longer. Hey, man, you're out. You're out of the family. That's literally what it meant for them to accept Jesus Christ and believe on the Lord. But so was their commitment to the truth that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Come on, somebody say, that's pretty powerful. That's powerful. James chapter 1 and verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting 
My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Can I tell you that word there for temptations? Can I give you a little bit of insight into that? It's, it's uh, parasmus in the Greek. And it means a putting to proof by experiment or experience. So by temptation, we're not necessarily talking to them about, oh, they were tempted to sin. We're really talking about persecution here, the testing of their faith, the persecution of their faith. This was, this was a group of people here, amen, that their faith was going to be tested. Why? Because we know it was written to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, meaning those early Jewish believers before the apostle Paul had begun to evangelize the Gentiles. So here they are. Hebrews their entire life and they've given that all up to serve Jesus and what does the message of James come listen brethren count it all joy when you have many different persecutions coming against you persecutions from without persecution from within persecution from outside the church persecution from inside the church persecution from outside your family persecution from inside your family he says count it all joy knowing this that the trying of your faith worketh patience there's been a lot of poor teaching on this that talks like well when you know whenever we're tempted we ought to just have joy praise the lord have you know when you're tempted that's not necessarily a joy time is it amen that's not necessarily time to laugh it's time to run <laughs> Read your Bible. The Bible says run from the appearance of evil. Don't even stop to laugh about it. Praise the Lord. Don't laugh. She might think that's cute and come on to you even more. Run, the Bible tells us. Run from the appearance of evil. That's how we respond to temptation to sin. This is the testing of your faith through trials. The testing of your faith through persecution. How do we know that further even just from the text, not just from the actual Greek wording, but from verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. So this is an issue of keeping the faith. Now, someone would say, well, you know, every time that we're tempted, it's a matter of keeping the faith. There's a certain amount of truth in that. But this is just not about the ordinary temptation to sin. I want you to get that. This is about a people that were persecuted. This is the very early church. James himself was beheaded, and he was beheaded by the Hebrews because he refused to conform to some of the old rules of the Hebrews. That's why he was put to death. And this is the guy that's writing to them and he's saying, listen, count it all joy when you're persecuted for the sake of the gospel. We know very little about persecution for the gospel's sake. Say, what are you talking about? People feel like they're persecuted if the church preaches on them. Well, I'm not going to get much help today, am I? I think I'm going to have to come down here in a minute. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I don't know if you want to hear it that straight and that strong. Praise the Lord, but don't, don't tell me twice. <laughs> Amen. 
Amen. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Some people, that's what they think persecution is. Well, I'm not going over to that church over there. Why? Everybody over in that church, you know, uh, they, 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 uh, you know, they're, they're talking about me. Well, you know, if you hadn't killed three people, you wouldn't be on the news. I mean, come on. Now, you're laughing, but I'm going to tell you, you have somebody sleep with three or four different people and then say, well, I'm not going to church over there. They're talking about me. Yeah, we're warning every young woman we know, stay away from you. If I had a bulletin board in the back, I'd have your picture on it. I'm not going to apologize for that. We preach on sin here. And we preach on sinners. Someone told me the other day, they said, well, you know, I'll tell you what. It, you know, Jesus would have never called him by name. Well, sure he called him by name. And the apostle Paul was real bad about it. Isn't that the word of God? What did he say about Demas? What, did the, what does the Bible say about Hophni and Phineas? Amen. They're named. Amen. They're called out and there's different people. They think that's persecution. No, that's called preaching the truth. That's not persecution for the gospel. That's the convicting power of the Holy Spirit trying to get the sin out of your life. That, we think that's religious persecution. I, I, remember, I know I told someone here one time years and years ago that, you know, they couldn't dress a certain way on the platform. It was just out of line. It was embarrassing for the whole church and they embarrassed themselves and and so they quit the church instead of changing their outfit. I don't understand it, but anyway, so they quit the church. So then someone brings me a bulletin from their new church, and the bulletin in the new church says, we want to welcome this new family to our church today that are leaving a legalistic church where they were persecuted. We didn't persecute them. We just told them, put your clothes on. When you come to church, have your clothes all on. And they need to be the right size. And you shouldn't be able to see through them. That's not persecution. How do you understand that? See, the Bible doesn't call that persecution. The Bible says, let him that stole steal no more. The Bible says, quit lying. <laughs> quit sleeping around. I can show you all this right there in the Bible. Come on, back me up, Joseph. It's right in there, isn't it? You know, abstain from all this worldliness. That's not persecution. Persecution is when you're living right and you're living holy and people hate you for it. When the convicting power of God that's on your life, when your testimony, they hate you for your testimony. When they find out you're a Christian, they try to get rid of you. You know, Steve Dahoney's wife was fired from being a postmaster after over 20 years of faithful service, and they can't pinpoint anything. I told him, I said, you know what it is. Somebody found out she's a Christian. And they've got the power to do something about it. So they did something about it. You think it doesn't happen? I'm telling you, it is rampant and it is everywhere. There are people, they won't do business with you if they find out that you're a Christian. Try to get a job working on a college and they find out you're a Christian business. Academia is the worst about uh, blaming uh, Christ and the cross for every problem in the world. Am I right? I've, I've heard professors with my own mouth say that religion is the cause of every war in human history. That is a lie. It is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Every war in human history was fought over an imaginary line on a map somewhere. 
Am I right? It's all about land and boundaries. And religion was just an excuse to get more land and to get more boundaries. But it's always about, if you don't believe me, hey man, just go cut a little bit of your neighbor's lawn and watch them show up at your house the next day talking about, you ain't claiming that as yours, are you? You better know where the property line is. I mean, you have a war on your hands. Someone was talking about that this morning. They cut two feet over in someone else's lawn. They come knocking on the door saying, we got a problem? That's because of an imaginary line. You can't even see the line. See, because anything that is about ownership is demonic. That's why the Bible calls the spirits that we fight principalities. Principalities are the domain of a prince. See, when you're outside the kingdom of God, it's all about what you own. But when you're inside the kingdom of God, you realize God owns everything and we are just stewards of what he's entrusted to us. We don't own anything. So anybody that's really in the kingdom isn't going to cause a war over a map. You say, why? Because our kingdom is not of this world. Somebody shout hallelujah. But our kingdom is a supernatural, spiritual kingdom. And in our kingdom, our God is the king and he owns everything. I said he owns everything. And you think that the princess and the prince had a wedding. You wait until Jesus unites with his bride. You're going to see, amen, a real wedding, a royal wedding. And we've got to wake up and realize as God's children... Amen, that we have got to begin to pursue righteousness to the point where there is persecution. You say, what's the problem with the church today? We're not anointed enough to be persecuted. Well, I'm not getting a lot of help right here, but I'm going to tell you right now, when you get this right, people are going to hate your guts. Hey, 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 hey. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Praise the Lord. Let me just preach a little bit. I, you know, I'm trying to teach, but I just feel the preach on me right now. It's like, listen, we've got to wake up and realize, church, when we do this right, hey, man, sinners cannot sit in the congregation of the righteous. When we do this right, we, we're convicting. We challenge people. We challenge their lethargy. We embarrass what they call Generosity. They give to get. They get their tax right off. They figure it out to the exact amount. Well, I've been doing my taxes. I've got to give a little bit more money away, but it's going to save me in the end. And here we are as God's people, and we're just like, I'm yours, Lord. Everything I've got, everything I have belongs to you. And we, we're happier when we give than when we receive. We just mess with this world. We mess with their whole ideology, their whole concept of what is humanity, of what is kind, is what, of what is good. Amen. We convict them with our honesty. We convict them. We expose them when we do the right thing. Amen. It's offensive. We, we've been taught by this modern day. Oh, if you're like Jesus, everybody's going to love you. Honey, if you're like Jesus, they're going to plot to kill you and nail you to a cross. Hallelujah. But there are those who, when they truly meet the Lord and are transformed by the truth and the knowledge of God, they're willing to take up the banner, amen, the blood-stained banner of Jesus Christ and hold it high regardless of what people say. Because we understand that we're not of this world anymore. And the very people that persecute us, we love them. 
Hallelujah. Have you know we love this world? Because we're like our father and he so loved this world that he gave his son. Christians are willing to give their life for those who are crucifying them. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's amazing how often that love, though, that love stirs people up. It stirs up emotion to where Stephen, think about this, Stephen, the Bible says, they gnashed on him with their teeth while he was preaching. Now, I want you to just kind of picture that in your mind. Grown people. His words were so convicting and so cutting to them that they gnashed on him, literally telling him, shut your mouth or I'm going to bite you even harder. Think about that. And he just kept on talking. And then what did they do? They gathered up stones and they began to throw the stones at him. And he still didn't stop preaching. Hey, man, we think, boy, if we could just preach it just right, the crowds would flock out. Yeah, they'll gather around with rocks and stones and everything you can imagine. But you see, when you're anointed, you convict. And when you convict, the first response to conviction is not always to repent. It is to first stop the conviction. What happens when you feel something like you feel a a, a splinter or something? You feel that pain. Immediately, you want to remove whatever it is that has cut you. Am I right? And that's the quick response that people often have to the gospel when their heart is pricked for the first time. They just want to get rid of the pain. If that means getting rid of you, they'll get rid of you. They don't know right away that it's a deeper problem and that they can get rid of it. Hey, man, by dealing with the inside, they haven't come to that yet. And so the initial response of the flesh is stone them, kill them, jail them, get away from them. Run from them. My God, can you imagine for everybody that chewed on Thomas, how many of them just ran home? I mean, I can't imagine everybody chewed on him, right? There must have been a few folks that just said, well, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Amen. But we've got to learn that this was, this was the atmosphere where James begins to write this letter and he says, listen, this is why I've got to encourage you because when you really do this right, you will be tried. You will be tested. But he says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. In other words, what's happening is doing a work in us. God gave me a word for a preacher a while back and said, listen, don't, don't, uh, you know, don't, don't cry because you prayed to know me and I sent you a Judas. And I've pondered that word that God put in my spirit. I thought, man, that's, you know, it was like God just saying, don't, don't cry over this. You asked to know me. This is what it takes to know me. How many of you in here want to know Jesus? Have you want the mind of Christ to be in you? Have you know you're not going to have the mind of Christ unless you go through something? See, Jesus was persecuted. See, I know what it is. I've been there. I've had Judas cut me. I've had, I've had him look me in the eye and say, well, I won't stab you in the back. And the whole time they already had, they already had the knife, had 70 pieces of silver in their pocket. I've been there. I've been there when they say, I'll never leave you. I'll tell you what, now people say whatever they want to about you, but I know you're a man of God. I'll never leave you. I'm telling you, I'm not going anywhere. That was the last time I saw them. I don't know where they went. 
<laughs> I've got till now people come up to me and say, Pastor, I'm not, I don't care who leaves. I'm not leaving. I say to Brenda, they're next. I done learned. Why, why are you telling me that? You've been thinking about it. That's why. You've been talking to the ones who left. And you're seriously thinking about it. Or why are you telling me? You don't need No, If you're staying, do you need to tell me? Isn't that the plan right now? We're all going to go to heaven together? The only reason you're talking about you ain't going nowhere because you've been thinking about going somewhere. Trying to convince yourself. You don't need to convince me. I assume everybody's going to go to heaven with me. We're going to march in there together. Praise the Lord. We're going to take some people with us too. Can somebody say amen? And so I've been there. I've experienced that. But what I've learned is, is that trial of your faith, that testing those wilderness experiences, those times when <coughs> those times when you're praying and everybody else is sleeping. Have you remember that story when Jesus was praying, he came back and his disciples were asleep, and he said, Could you not tarry just one hour? I mean, I am fighting hell itself. We are on the precipice of the great warfare. The reason that I came, the final point, the, 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 the very pinnacle of my life and ministry is rolling up in the balance. And, and I just ask you to pray with me a little while and nobody showed up to the prayer meeting. Just ask you to pray a little bit. Just, just called and, and said, listen, I, I need the leadership to pray. Or we called a fast. And, and then when you call the board on, on the day of the fast, and they, they're like, well, I just was at Burger King and was, was getting a little lunch. What did you call about, Pastor? And then you're, you don't want to embarrass them. You don't even tell them about the fast. You just call to see how the fast was going. You know how it's going. They forgot about it. I've been there. And you say, how do you handle it? You handle it with patience. You handle it with love. And all of a sudden you begin to realize, I have a revelation of Jesus. I, I know something about Jesus right now. See, I just thought, sometimes we just think, well, he was just Jesus. Oh, no, the Bible says that he was a man like unto us, subject to like passions, the Bible says. He was a man just like you're a man. He had feelings just like you have feelings. He got hungry just like you get hungry. He got lonely just like you get lonely. He went through the, it hurt when Judas betrayed him. That's why I looked at him and says, you betrayed me with a kiss. Think about that statement. Oh, I imagined this in my mind many times, even as the Father revealed it. But I didn't see the kiss coming. I knew you were coming with the crowd, and I knew why you were here. But you kissed me. You actually kissed me at the very moment that you betrayed me. That was a little glimpse of the man, Jesus, and what he endured. And yet he'll allow us, as we're tested, as we're tried, as we're persecuted for the gospel, whether we realize it or not, we're learning Jesus. We're learning what he felt and what he thought. And now we're using him as our example. And we start out just saying what he said. But we didn't really mean it. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But Lord, if it's your will, kill them today, please. Take them out, God, with a lightning bolt. That would be nice. No one could deny that lightning bolt. I'm right. They're wrong. have to see that, right? We start out saying it, but then eventually we begin to mean it, and we begin to understand this incredible man and how the Spirit of God 
moved in his life and empowered him to have such great love. The testimony of Jesus Christ is not the testimony of great willpower. It is the testimony of pure obedience. Pure obedience. That's the highest order of worship. Pure obedience. You know, out of all the stories we read about Jesus, it's very seldom. Now, it's there if you study it out. I can show you where Jesus danced. The Bible's very clear about it. The Bible says that when they returned to testify, when he sent them out two by two, the Bible says that Jesus rejoiced in his spirit. That word in the Greek means he literally jumped up and down for joy. So he was Pentecostal. It's okay. And I can show you where Jesus sang because the Bible says that after supper, after the Passover, that they sang hymns of praise to the Lord. So the Bible tells. So we read, but it's only a little bit about singing and dancing. And yet Jesus was the greatest worshiper that had ever appeared on the planet up to that day. Why? Because he walked in perfect obedience to his Father. And there is no higher form of worship. We can, listen, when you come in here on Sunday mornings and sing and lift up your voice and dance and shout and praise the Lord, God loves that. We do what we do here in the way of praise and worship because that's what the Bible says God likes. Not because it's what people like. You know, I realize that, you know, if we get some, you know, uh, get some music in here that's just what people would like, maybe we'd build a bigger crowd, you know. Maybe we'd pick a certain genre and be known as that church and have people come in and, but, and don't pressure people. Just let them sit there and soak and listen and don't encourage them to jump and shout and dance and raise their hands and clap their hands. But there's a reason we do that because that's what the Bible says God likes. That's what it says. He loves praise on the cymbals and on the organs and on the, drum, on the drums. And he, he loves that. He loves it when we raise our hands. That's what he instructed us to praise him in this way. So it's in obedience to God. It's about what God likes. But you know what? We can come in here and do that on Sunday morning. And then if you come to church and sing and shout and dance about, and uh, the father says, who go work in the field? And the son says, I'll go. Father, I'll go. Hallelujah. Woo, woo. It's me, Jesus. And then all week long, they give no thought to God or to the lost or to the world. They live like they want to. And then God said, there was another son who said, I don't know about this. I don't know if I'm going to do this or not. But then he repented and he went and he did the work. And Jesus said, which son is greater in the eyes of his father? The one that obeyed. Not the one that talked a good game, but the one that obeyed. And we as God's people, listen, I want to get the word inside of us. I want to get the word so deep inside of us that it's like a lamp and a light that it leads our path, that it affects us. But the word alone, the letter of the law, the Bible says, kills. But the spirit makes alive. How does the spirit make it alive? When the word becomes alive to you, how does it become alive to you? It's when you can apply it to your own life and your own set of circumstances. It's when you're living and you look and you see and you say, that's me. 
what the pastor's talking about. That's what I'm experiencing. That's what I'm going through. I, I've felt that. I've been persecuted. I've been rejected. Well, the question is, did you get bitter or did you get better? Did you get angry? Are you still holding that grudge? Or did you become more like Jesus? You got more. I told someone the other day, we was kind of having a disagreement with somebody, and I said, I'm going to make them love me. Going to make them love me. Whatever it takes. That's just what we do. Going to make them love me. Just be so lovely and so kind and be so one-sided about everything that it's just all in their favor to where they just get, they got to love me. They can't help it. See, sometimes we don't press past the hurt of initial conviction. Amen. Until we've just loved them. Just loved them until, until it tears down every wall and every barrier. Listen, I'm going to tell you right now, you can't be any more lovely than Jesus. And he found 12 and one of those gave up on him. And every one of them doubted him in the moment. Think about that. And so we, we, need to take, we need to ease up on ourselves sometimes when we look around and say, hey, listen, everybody in the world doesn't love me. Well, look at Jesus. I mean, think about it. The Bible tells of over 18 times that they plotted to kill Jesus. 18 times. They finally did it. But 18 times they plotted to kill him. 18 times. Think about that. He was Jesus. We're not. Woo. But love conquers all. Love will tear down the walls. Love will break down the barriers. Love will cause people. That's why we need patience because we need to trust that patience will have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Say, so what are you saying? And God even takes the persecution of the enemy and he uses it to develop in us the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil's trying to destroy me and he made me more like Jesus. The devil's trying to kill me and destroy my reputation and get me to lose it, lose my faith. Get me to give up, and all he did was make me more like Jesus. I mean, think about what an incredible testimony that is. That we may be mature and complete, wanting nothing. Wanting nothing. I mean, think about what a place that that is. It's called contentment. When's the last time you didn't want anything? When's the last time you couldn't think of one thing that you had to have that was going to make your life better or make you feel better? Want nothing, nothing missing. How did it happen? Because I became like Jesus. And Jesus, listen, Jesus walked in constant fulfillment because he was in perfect relationship with the Father. In the Father, there's fullness of joy. In the presence of the Lord, the Bible says there's fullness of joy. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. There are eternal pleasures that's incredible. I mean, when we get in the presence of God, we don't think about the nasty now and now. We're not bound by that which is temporal and carnal and earthly, but we get caught up in that which is pleasurable and is eternal. How many of you have ever been in the presence of God? I mean, you could feel the presence of God. Isn't that addictive? 
Come on, be honest. Isn't that addictive? I was talking to someone the other day, and they were talking about these little kids, six, seven, eight years old. They started playing church, and the Lord started moving, and they all fell out on the floor speaking in other tongues. And they said when they checked in on them a few days later, they were doing the same thing. They said, well, what happened? They got a taste. You get a taste. You want more. Say, what happened to you? I got a taste when I was little, and ain't nothing else tastes like this. Nothing else feels like this. Amen. That's why Jesus was able to look at his disciples and they came back from getting lunch and they said, well, what's up with Jesus? He doesn't want anything to eat. And he discerned what was in their heart. And he looked at them and said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. My meat is to do the will of my father. Woo. It sustains me. It's better than food. Did you hear me? I said, it's better than food, better than ice cream. Pastor Church sent a letter out to the church today saying, I love you more than pizza. <laughs> I read that. I thought, man, I'll tell you what, that's, that's pretty special right there. I don't know how he feels about pizza, but I have pretty strong feelings about it. I mean, when you start talking about double cheese, all meat pizza, folks, that's some serious love. That's a good thing. But I love you even more than that. And that's what Jesus was saying. Hey, man, that I love my father. Hey, man, it's better to me than a meal. I could just skip over this meal. I don't even have to eat today. Oh, not because of some fast or some uh, denial that I'm going through, but just simply because I'm going to let the presence and power of God keep me and sustain me. I'm going to let him be my bread when I'm hungry. He's my water when I'm thirsty. He's my rock in a weary land. My shelter in the time of the storm. He's my doctor. He's my lawyer. He's my hope in my tomorrow. He's a wheel in the middle of the wheel. A bright and a morning star. The beautiful rose of Sharon. The lily of the valley. The fairest of 10,000 to my soul. He's my all in all. He's everything I need and more. He's all that. And a bag of chips. We're looking for something more than that. No, because it's in the midst of our trial, in our struggle, that we realize there's nothing else we can lean on. There is no victory outside of faith in God. That's what happens when troubles come. You know what happens when troubles come in our life. What do we do? We do what the world does. First, we try to ignore it. At least I like to tease people here. They'll be all worked up about some problem or some situation in the church. And, and so in, in, in jesting, I'll say to them, there is no problem so big that we can't completely ignore it if we really put our heads together. <laughs> How many times have you heard me say, I'd love to just kind of ice break when you're coming into a meeting, you got to deal with something. Amen. But that's, what, that's human nature. We're just going to ignore it. And what happens when you ignore trouble? Trouble gets bigger. Trouble gets worse. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. You can't ignore it. You got to deal with it. You got to lance it. You got to get the poison out. So we start out and we try to ignore it. And when that doesn't work, what do we do? Well, then we throw some money at it. Because we think money is going to solve all our problems. And so we throw some money at it. Here, we'll just get a lawyer. We'll get a doctor. 
we're going to throw some money at it. We're just going to see what money does, see what happens. And then when the money has been spent and all that we have received for our money is the lawyers told us, yes, you have a very, very bad problem. Only he told you in lawyerly form. Or we go to the doctor and the doctor tells us the actual Latin clinical name for it. Well, what you have is a fibromyalgic tumor. Oh, thank you. Now you have done nothing about the problem. I'm broke, but at least I know what to call it. Thank you very much. We have the official name. We knew there was a problem. Now we know exactly what to call the problem. Because having no money doesn't solve problems. Money just helps us identify problems. And so then finally, what do we do? What do we do? We either panic or we give up or finally, 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 after we've run to the family, after we've sought counsel, we finally go to the Lord and we say, God, there's just nothing anybody can do about this. I need you to move. I need you to move. And the Lord says so often in that set of circumstances, So often in that set of circumstances, the Lord says, okay, wait right there. Because I waited a long time for you to get there. Now I want to see if you're going to stay there. And you're going to trust in me before I move. I want to make sure this isn't just desperate faith, but this is faithful faith. Say, what do you mean by faithful faith? Well, actually, in the Greek language, there is no suffix f-u-l it is added throughout the new testament in order to help with meaning so think about that anywhere in your bible where it says faithful it could have said faith and anywhere that it says faith it could have said faithful there is no difference church if you really have faith you're faithful If you don't have faith, you won't be faithful. It's just that real. There is no separation there. It's an English separation. It doesn't exist in the Greek. Are you following me with that? We tend to think, you know, well, I have great faith, but, you know, two days later, you don't. Well, then you didn't have much faith. You didn't have what you thought because real faith is faithful. And God wants to see if we're faithful because then and only then does he know if we really have faith. How can you tell the difference between somebody saying, I believe God, and someone who's really going to hold on to God regardless of what happens, regardless of the pain? I thought about the story of Darlene Bishop. She found a lump in her breast. She went to the doctors. The doctors told her that it was cancer. They told her that they would have to do a mastectomy on both breasts. She went to the Lord and she said, Lord, you're my healer. You're my doctor. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to live my life this way. The cancer in her breast became so bad that literally at times she would begin to bleed through her blouse. She said upon one occasion it was so bad that even with her top on, she just leaned over the sink and the blood dripped through her clothes. But she said, I'm going to believe God. Till one day she awoke 
the cancer was gone. The lumps were gone. There was no scars. She was healed by the power of God. Come on, somebody give God a praise for that right now. The trial of your faith worketh patience. And let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Have you come to that place in your life where you realize that if all you have is Jesus, it's enough? If all I've got is Jesus, it is enough. I don't need to go through anything else to know this. I have learned this. I have walked this road. And I've seen the trials and the temptations. I've seen it happen. I've seen my heroes fall. Amen. I've seen people that I looked up to go back out into the world. Amen. I've seen them fall. But I made up my mind a long time ago, church, that if mama don't go, it won't hinder me. That if daddy don't go, it won't hinder me. If the deacon don't go, it won't hinder me. If the televangelist fails, it won't hinder me. Amen. I'm going on with Jesus because Jesus is my pearl of great price. And I'll gladly give up everything else as long as I've got that pearl. My happiness is in that pearl. My joy is in that pearl. My security is in that pearl. Amen. It's that pearl. Amen. That takes care of me and carries me through hard trials. And so I can honestly say, take this whole world, but give me Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the very gospel that allowed these saints of God to give up their very families that they might serve the Lord. That they might follow the will of God for their life. God, give us people that are saved to just that extent. Lord, take it all. You can have everything. As long as I've got you, it's enough. It is enough. If you really believe that with me today, I want you to stand to your feet. I want you to lift your hands to the Lord. Saints, lift your hands to the Lord right now, if you will. I want you to just begin to call on Jesus. I want you to just begin to love him. Jesus, you are the love of my life. Jesus, you are the hope that I cling to. Jesus, you mean more than this world to me. Hallelujah. Sing it right now, if you will, please. Worship the Lord just a moment. Let God touch your heart. I don't know what you're going through, but the trial of your faith worketh patience. When God is all done inside of you, the world isn't going to see anything but Jesus. Your family is going to see Jesus. Your neighbors are going to see Jesus. Come on, you are. You mean more, more than, than this, this world, world to